Well, as we get started this morning, I want to uh, play a little bit of word association. So I'm going to say a person's name, and I want you to shout back to me the, uh, the first word you think of when you hear this person's name, all right? Abraham Lincoln. Okay, uh, that'll work, whatever. There's no right or wrong, wrong answer. Um, Muhammad Ahmadinejad. Okay, how about uh, Rachel Ray? Kurt Cobain. Uh, Gabrielle Giffords. Some people are like, ah, uh, uh, right? Okay, what about uh, Chris Christie? Interesting. Billy Graham. Okay, what about Robert Frost? And last, and maybe, no, not least, uh, Rebecca Black. Right. Now, whenever, whenever you hear th these names, right, uh, immediately something comes to mind, like Abraham Lincoln, president, or he, you know, he freed the slaves. Um, you, you have uh, visual images or, or mental images that come to mind with different people. Billy Graham, evangelist. Uh, we, we are ever indebted to Rebecca Black for finally teaching us how the days of the week line up. I never knew before she told us all that. But the reality is that each one of us in this room, we have an identity. And whenever someone says our name, certain images come to mind. That they, they spring up in the person. They may have such thoughts as beautiful or obnoxious or maybe lazy or prideful or angry or controversial or sweet or happy. And those those thoughts of you, they could be dead on or they could be wrong. It just depends. And, and what we're doing here, as, as we dig into day four of the life and the death and the life again of Jesus Christ, what I hope that we can do is not only have a clearer picture of who Jesus is and why he came and, and what he came to accomplish, but also who are we? Who are we as followers of Christ? And unfortunately, over the past few days, as we've been going through this, this Holy Week, and we've been slowing it down and looking at it, what we've seen are the people of God have been, the, been those that have been rejecting other people, that have been rude to other people. They have been, been times when they've been intolerant or indifferent towards other people, specifically those people who are poor and those people who are downtrodden. And as a result of that and many other things, Oftentimes, what comes to mind whenever we're here in the 21st century and someone says the word Christian, oftentimes the mental image that comes with that is they think the person is judgmental or selfish or pious or just this religious freak, right? And just weird. Because that's oftentimes what people associate with the term Christian. So what Jesus came to do was he came to renew and restore the identity as followers of God. He came to expose to us who God truly is. And, and through this study, we've been looking at this Holy Week, slowed down, and we've been trying to do it in four-part harmony, if you remember. And those four parts are the melody, which is the life of Christ, as we're looking at Holy Week. We have the Old Testament, which is the baseline, right? Which keeps our feet grounded and keeps us from interpreting the Scripture however we want to. Then we have the tenor, which is how we respond to our community and to our world. And then we have the alto, which is not the most important part, but it's the most important part to you and me because that's our part. 
And we've been trying to look at these scriptures in that four-part harmony as we look at this story. And today, we're going to start with the baseline. We're going to start with the Old Testament. We're going to get our feet grounded as we move forward. I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 12. If you're reaching for a blue Bible, it's the second book. In any Bible, it's the second book of the Bible. Um, Exodus chapter 12 is is where we're going to be here in just a moment. In Exodus, we read this amazing story of how God freed uh, the nation of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Egypt had been uh, enslaving the Israelite people. And uh, in this story, in the book of Exodus, you can read the whole story. I'm not going to read the whole book to you this morning. I know you're thankful for that. But you can read the whole story about how God delivered his people. And I am going to read a few verses from Exodus chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along in your Bible or it'll be on the screen behind me. It says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Verse 6, Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. Down in verse 12 it says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. And down in verse 40 it says, Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Now, now why do I bring that up? Well, because the Israelite nation, for over 400 years, their identity was that of a slave. They were slaves in Egypt. And and every time they were thought of, they were thought of the people who were building the Egyptian empire. They were the ones that were building everything, and and their backs were the ones being whipped, and, and their identity was slave. And as we look at the baseline, what we see is that they've been freed from slavery, right? The Israelite people have been freed by God, and they are able to now be free and and live in freedom. And with that in mind, we have to remember what we've seen over the past several days in our study, over the last three weeks. We've looked at the fact that Jesus walked into the temple, and he didn't just kind of stroll in. What did he do? He walked in and he flipped over the tables, right? He drove out the money changers. He, He told them what a bad job they were doing with God's temple. He cursed the fig tree. Now, why did Jesus do all of that? Because what he saw was a group of people who were supposed to be the people of God, and they were not acting like the people of God. They, they were doing things that they shouldn't be doing. They were the ones who had been enslaved, and now they were ostracizing and enslaving other people. Once they were slaves, now they had slaves. And, and Jesus rides into the city on the back of a donkey, and he says, that's not who my father is. That's not who God is. He doesn't approve of your actions. And Jesus is coming to show us what God is really like, and who God truly is, and how we really ought to be. 
which brings us to the melody of what Jesus is doing. And uh, we're going to be in John chapter 13, if you want to turn there. Uh, John chapter 13, we find once again the Holy Week, and we're slowing it down, and we're looking at the next day as to what Jesus is doing. And it's a very beautiful passage of Scripture here as to what Jesus does. We're going to begin in verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then you go down just a little bit farther, and it says when he gets to Simon Peter, Simon Peter says to him, verse 8, No, you shall never wash my feet. Now, why was Peter uh, saying that? Why didn't Peter want Jesus to wash his feet? Well, one of the things that we need to remember is that not only did the disciples, they had expectations of Jesus, but everyone had expectations of Jesus. They all expected Jesus to come riding in, right? To be the king that would free them from Roman rule. They wanted him to be king of the Jews, to be the Messiah. He was, he was going to come in and be mighty and be a warrior and lead a revolt that would establish them and give them freedom once again. Those were the expectations. And yet, even on this very night, the disciples didn't get it. The disciples did not understand what Jesus was doing, that he came about to truly bring peace and freedom, the freedom that they really needed, even if it's not the freedom that they desired. And so when Jesus, the living Son of God, the one they thought would be the King and be the Messiah, when he got up and he removed his clothing, leaving him in what basically we would consider our underwear, and then he wraps a towel around his waist, Peter's like, you know what? This is bizarre. This is not going to happen. Jesus, you cannot do this. You're, you're the king. You're, you're not the one to do this. You're the one that's going to overthrow Rome, right? You're the one that's the Messiah. You're the one that we've been following and counting on. You see, in this culture, the, the guest or uh, the person who was hosting the event, they would have slaves or servants who would pour the wine and serve the food, and they would also wash the people's feet. They would wash, wash the feet of the guests. And Peter is dumbfounded because here is Jesus the Lazarus-raising, food-multiplying, uh, miracle-working, all-amazing Jesus, who's down on his hands and knees, performing the role of a slave. And Peter says, no, no, you are not going to wash my feet. You're the king. You see, Peter understood, excuse me, understood something about the economy in the first century that's a lot like the economy of the 21st century here today. Back then, it's a lot like it is now. The, the people are all about power and possessions, right? Uh, men and women will do just about anything they feel necessary to accomplish what they want to accomplish. We will spend hours plotting and planning what we're going to tell our boss, what we're going to tell our spouse, what we're going to tell our pastor, so that they will see things from our point of view. We want to make sure that, that our voice is being heard. Uh, we will accumulate massive amounts of debt to accumulate things that we don't even really want so that we feel better about ourselves in the short term and maybe we can impress those people that we don't even know who they are and we do those things and then we try to make up for it by working harder and doing more and it causes stress in our life and we try to overcome and and, and do all these things and, and we're trying to live in such a way that it's it's not the way god would have us to work but we feel like that's the way we have to live. We, we think that's what we have to do in order for our voice to be heard, for our, our ideas to be heard, so that we can rise to the top, so that, so that we can do things the way we want to do them. And it, it's very difficult. We strive just to be a little bit higher up on the ladder, right? 
we want just another zero or two at the end of our salary package. That's what we're looking for. We want to be known or identified or, or seen for what we do. Now, I want to be careful because I truly believe there's nothing wrong with having dreams and having goals. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to do things. The issue is, how do we get there? Do we step on other people? Do we pretend to be something we're not? Do we push other people down? How are we getting about going to where we desire to go? The name of the game, if it's success, what are we willing to do to get there? And, and in the first century, it's a lot like it was today. In Luke chapter 22, we read a parallel account of this very same passage that we read from John. And what we find there is that the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. They were talking about, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. And they were trying to figure out who was the greatest. And some scholars point to Jesus' response to that question, to that discussion, in washing the disciples' feet to show them what the answer truly was, that the servant was to be the greatest. But to help us understand maybe a little bit in greater detail as to what Jesus was doing and his actions, uh, and probably because we've heard this story so many times, let's slow down and, and let's get a little bit better understanding of what was going on and, and to how, how people behaved and how people responded uh, to this experience. So I want to show you a picture of a typical uh, dining area there in the Mediterranean culture at that time. And, and as you look at that picture, I have a question for you. How many of you have ever gone out to eat with a large group of people before? Okay? Um, you know, if you, where you sit matters. I mean, if we can just be real honest, right? If you're interviewing for a job, you're going to sit at the middle where everybody can hear you, right? But if you go out and you're with a big group of friends and you're sitting at one end of the table, not on the end, but near the end, and all the fun conversation and, and witty remarks and laughter is taking place on the other end of the table, you're like, can we go? And in that moment, you understand how important or maybe how unimportant you are in relationship to everyone else at the table, right? It's just kind of, kind of the way it works out. And this is exactly what's happening in the ancient culture. It was all about social positioning and who was the most important. And so what you would see here is the first person that was going to appear there on your screen would be the most important person in the room. They are the, the number one person. It would either be the host or the guest of the host. And everyone in the room would know they are the most important person. They matter the most. Then the second person would be immediately uh, next to them. And they would know, hey, I'm not as important as that person, but I'm more important than everybody else in the room. And then the third person would then be there and know their position. And then everybody else would kind of fill in the, the rest of the room. And that's the way things were set up. It, it was ranked in social order. Now, the guest or the host would then also provide slaves or servants who would do the things, they, you know, to pour the wine and, and wash the feet and serve the food and wash the dishes, but they didn't even fit in this social uh, network, okay? They, they were non-entities at this time. And so we go back to John chapter 13, and we look at what we call the Last Supper, and what we see is that Jesus would be in that number one position, all right? Which makes sense. They're all following him. He's their leader. He's their king. His, he's the Messiah. He's their mentor. He's the teacher. Everyone understood that he was the most important. And sitting next to Jesus in the position number two would have been John. Now, John refers to himself throughout the gospel that he wrote as the one that Jesus loved. And if you read the rest of the gospel accounts, it gives support to that, that John was 
the most, one of the most, if not the most important disciple. He had the best relationship with Jesus. He was, he was the number two guy. And so then you go all the way around the room to the very end where we might assume Judas was sitting, okay? And so that's the way the social structure works. And so Jesus gets up from his spot, his number one position. He removes his outer clothing, and he wraps a towel around his waist. And if you go back to John, the, the first part of it, it says, in order to demonstrate the full extent of his love. Jesus was demonstrating love to his disciples by getting up and performing this act. He, he took on the position of a slave. He willingly and intentionally lowered himself to the point of where he no longer had a position of honor. He, didn't, he no longer had any authority or significance. He stepped down from the place that he deserved as king to take on the role of a slave, to take on the role of a servant. And he gets down on his hands and knees, and he does what no one else is willing to do, and he washes the feet of the disciples. You've got to love Peter, though, right? Peter's like, nope, not going to do it. You're not, because... Because Peter understood, right? He knew that that's not the role the king ought to play. But look at what happens next, down in verse 12 of John chapter 13. It says, when he had finished, he being Jesus, when he'd finished washing their feet, including Peter's, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. God in the flesh, stepping out of his position and out of his rightful place, destroying the social hierarchy, taking on the role of a servant. And I think what's happening here is, is that Jesus is demonstrating to us that regardless of your status, regardless of your position, re regardless of your title or your salary package or, or however you see yourself, our followers, our identity as followers of Jesus Christ is that of a servant. The role that we play in our home, the, the role that we play in our neighborhood, our role at work should be that of a willing servant. And at this point, you can, you can almost see the bass line and the melody and even the tenor all playing together as one right here. I, I illustrate it this way. God freed the Israelites from slavery. Jesus became a slave himself. And now he's telling us to take on that role as well. Does that make sense? God freed his people. He freed them from slavery. Then Jesus took on the role of a slave, and now we're called to be a slave, to be a servant as well. It's important that, that we understand that for us, that's our role. It was a few moments later in verse 34 of John chapter 13 that he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is trying to get the point across to his disciples. He's saying, you know what? I haven't really come to overthrow the Roman Empire. I haven't come to live up to your expectations. I have come to be a servant, to, to show you that we're going to love people into a relationship with God because that's what it's about, that it's our job to serve. I am not maybe the king you expected, but I am the king you need. And Jesus tries to get them to see that, and so he takes off his garment, he wraps himself in a towel, and takes on the role of a slave. And in doing so, he undermined the ancient culture of classifying people. He says there's no difference between who ranks at the top and the, the one at the bottom. We're all equal because every person is valuable in God's eyes. 
And our primary identity as a follower of Christ needs to be that, that we use what God has given us to serve those around us. And what our world needs now more desperately than ever before are people who are willing to sacrifice and willing to literally or figuratively get down on their hands and knees and serve other people, to wash other people's feet, to do things that no one else is willing to do. That's what God has called us to do. We're called to serve those who no one else is willing to serve because we are the people of God and we are servants of others. And as I was going through this, it got me to thinking about just my life in church. I grew up going to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every Sunday afternoon to the nursing home, and later every Sunday afternoon doing communion to shut-in. Every Thursday afternoon, we'd go down to the church and do the bulletin. Every Saturday, we'd go to the church and help clean. I think I lived there more than at home. It was one of those things that, that church was just something that we did, and, and it, was, it was a part of our life. Um, I've been in vocational ministry now for 19 years, and, and before I came to PCC, I was in charge of the involvement ministry at the church. And what I did was I had, would have people come to me, and I'd say, hey, what do you like to do? And they'd tell me what they like to do, and we'd figure out how they could use their gifts and talents to serve through the local church. And in all my years growing up as a kid and, and in ministry and doing the things, I cannot recall ever having someone ever come to me and say, you know what, Craig, I feel like God has gifted me with the ability to vacuum floors. I've never had someone say, you know what, Craig, I just feel called by God to come in and straighten the chairs on Sunday morning or to take out the trash or wash the dinner. I've yet to have anybody come and say, you know what, I think that's my role. So it got me thinking, who does God give those gifts to? Whose job is that? Who, who is gifted to straighten chairs and, and to make sure that there's Bibles and pens in the back of the, of the seats? Who's, who's the one that, that's gifted and called to make sure that the trash can liners are, you know, where they're supposed to be and not stuck down in and that there's another one underneath there to make sure if it gets... Who's in charge of that? Is it that God just gifts certain people to lead multi-billion dollar corporations and do all this big upfront stuff and then the rest of us are just, oh yeah, that's all I can do? Is that the way it works? You know what? If there was a, a soapbox up here on stage, I'd be jumping up on it for just a minute. I'll jump back down. But the idea is this. I want you to realize that, that I don't think anyone has been given the gift of vacuuming floors or taking out the trash or, or washing the dishes. I would suggest it has nothing to do with gifting. It has everything to do with your attitude. I think that's why Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 about Jesus. I mean, he said that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself taking on the very nature of a servant, the very nature of a slave. We need to have that attitude. We see in John chapter 13, Jesus is teaching his disciples this idea about that you will never be a force for good unless you're willing to become a humble servant. Paul charged the earliest Christians with this idea, and it's being impressed upon us again today that our role as followers of Christ is to be that of a servant. We need to be identified as a servant. And when people hear your name, when people hear the name Christian, we want them to associate not all that other stuff, but a servant. I think this is the toughest, if not one of the toughest messages that Jesus tries to teach his disciples and teach us, that we are to be servants. Because in our society today, it, it's a lot like it was back in that culture, right? We're positioning ourselves 
And we do it, even if we're not thinking about doing it, we compare ourselves. Where am I? Well, I may not be the most important, but at least I'm not them. I may not be this high up on the social ladder, but at least I'm not where they are. And, and no matter where you are, you look up and down and you compare yourself to other people. We're, we want to do better. And, and again, there's nothing inherently wrong with striving to do better and setting goals and wanting to do things different. But is it at the expense of other people? How do you strive to get there? In the midst of the environment that Jesus is talking to the disciples, he's challenging them to ignore and undermine the entire system of social hierarchy and to treat everyone the same, to seek to be the lowest instead of always striving to be the highest, to challenge us to be willing to kneel down, to get on our hands and knees and take on the role of a servant. We need to be like Jesus and come to serve rather than be served. So what does that mean to us practically, looking at Jesus' story and what the Old Testament says in the tenor part? What, what about our community? What about our society and our world? Does this mean that what we need to do is get a basin and a, and a thing and a towel and go into the office tomorrow morning and ask people if you can wash their feet? Probably not. Maybe. But, but I would guess probably not. So, so what does that mean to us? Well, I think very practically it could mean a couple of different things. Tomorrow morning you're going to be tempted, just like I'm going to be tempted, whenever we engage in a conversation, to make it all about us. Because we're really pretty good about talking about ourselves. We're talking about how, what we did over the weekend, or, or what we want to do, or what our plans are, what our dreams are. And I wonder if tomorrow, and for the next week, if we could run a little experiment. And I want to challenge you to do two things. The first thing is to flip the conversation. Would you be willing to purposely and intentionally flip the conversation around and ask the other person, what's your dream? What is it that you desire in your life? What, what, are, what are your goals? What are you hoping to accomplish? And how can I maybe help you further your dream and accomplish those things? I want to challenge all of us to do that. Also this week, I want to challenge you, regardless of who you come in contact with, to find a unique way to encourage others to encourage the people that we come in contact with. And it makes no difference where they rank in the social class system that we've set up. It doesn't matter if they're a member of the cleaning crew or the mail room or the office manager or the CEO. It may be the, the school crossing guard, the principal, the superintendent, a teacher. It could be a police officer, a, a fireman, the garbage collector. It could even be that, that person at the DMV, which is very hard to love most times, right? And yet we need to appreciate them not for what they do, but for who they are, because they are a child of God, and God loves them. Are we willing to encourage them? Are we willing to do those things? I want to challenge us, each of us, to find a way to be encouraging to every person we come in contact with, because if we really want to make a difference in our community, if we really want to do something different than we've done before, and if we want to be known as people who are servants, then we're going to have to get out there and serve. It's going to take a community of believers to work together and as individuals to go out and serve. Now, understand this, because I realize this, uh, and, and it needs to be stated. This life that Jesus is asking us to live, not everybody's going to want it. Not everybody's going to accept it. There are lots of people out there that are like, serve others? No, thank you. I'd rather be served. Take care of others. Talk about, no, 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 it's about me. And there's going to be a lot of people out there like that 
Can I challenge you to serve them as well? Serve others, regardless of who they are. What we see in John chapter 13 in these these short 38 verses was that even in Jesus' disciples, the 12, those that were with him in the upper room for what we call the Last Supper, two of them were detractors. Two of them. Now, the first one is obvious, right? Judas. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, Judas is the one who, who we you know, cast a lot of blame on and we, and we think bad about all the time. G- Judas found his primary identity in wealth and in power and in the accumulation of things. But the second detractor, we read about just a few lines down, and it's one we know but we try not to think about too much, and that's Peter. Peter was also a detractor, the one who claimed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one that Jesus said upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Peter was the one who said, Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. And yet, he denied Jesus three times. Judas found his identity in the accumulation of wealth. Peter thought that Jesus' star power was starting to wane, right? He's like, oh, no, I I never knew him. I don't know who you're talking about. He decided to identify with the crowd rather than follow Jesus to the cross. His identity came from the acceptance of others, which got me thinking about us, which brings us to the alto part of of the song. Your part, the role that you and I play. Where does our identity come from? Does it come from the amount of money we do or do not have in the bank? Does it come from how we view ourselves as as important or less important because of the education that we have or the diplomas we have on the wall or how many letters are or are not before and after our name? Do we find our identity in in what our kids have accomplished? Do we find our identity in uh, our paycheck or in our retirement plan or, or, or in our number? Do we find our identity in the recognition that we receive? You know, I feel this way about me, and as I've told people all the time, I preach to me and hope it applies to someone else as well. But oftentimes I feel like I'm walking into a junior high cafeteria where it seems to be a lot more important where you sit and who you sit with than it is sitting down and just sharing a meal with someone. We find our identity in not what is important, but what we feel like is so important to us. Tim Keller writes that there is nothing more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. I wonder if oftentimes we look at ourselves and we find our identity in what we do versus who we are in Christ. And do we look at other people and find their identity and usefulness and value in what they can do or what they can do for us versus who they are in Christ? Now, I've been thinking about this over the, over the past few weeks. How could God, how could Jesus, the King of the universe, step away from his power and and perform an act like this? Well, John chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, we read it before, but it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus' identity was in God. Judas found his identity in wealth and power. Peter found his identity in the acceptance of other people, but Jesus knew who he was, who he was in Christ. And and we are children of his. We are heirs to the throne. And because we are his, because we are heirs, we have no reason to worry. We have no reason not to do those things, no reason to be afraid, no reason not to walk into our job or into our neighborhood or into our own home and take on the role of a servant 
Because that is our identity as a follower of Christ. We are servants of His. And as servants of His, we need to serve everyone. But it comes down to being willing to serve. And part of your willingness to serve is based on the, your answer to the question, do you know who Christ is? Do you know who Jesus is? Who is He in your life? Who is he in your daily life? Not just on Sunday morning when we, we come and we sing together and we raise our hands and it's all good, but, but is he your king all the time? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? You know, every week we have an opportunity where we offer an invitation, and we're going to do that here in a few moments. But before we do that, we're going to take communion together. And the reason we're going to do that today is because Jesus served. And Jesus served his disciples as they took part of the meal. And, and after Jesus served them and he did those things, he, he stood before them and he said, take this bread, and he broke it. He says, this is my body. Take and eat and remember my sacrifice for you. And then he took the cup and he, he passed the, the cup around and he said, take and drink of this. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, you proclaim him. You, we proclaim Jesus. That's what we get to do together. And this morning, as we partake of communion together, would you do two things? Would you not only remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross, but would you remember how Jesus came to be a servant? Not just in the big things that we think about on Easter, but in the small things. In taking off his outer garment and wrapping a towel around his waist and, and washing his disciples' feet. And what does that mean for you? How is God calling you to be a servant as well? I want you to remember Jesus. Remember his sacrifice. Remember his servant. I'm going to pray and ask the uh, ushers to pass the tray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you willingly surrendered yourself. That not only did you go to the cross for us, Father, but you also gave of yourself by serving you serve the disciples, Father. You taught us to serve. You, you desire for us to go and do likewise. So, Father, as we remember your sacrifice this morning, help us to, to focus on you, to be challenged by your example, and to start now living our life for you. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.